0: History lecture sixty four, Rabbi Blyweis. We uh, yesterday did a survey of the Asara Haruge mountains the uh, ten martyrs, and um, they stay with us. There's, the, there's the, they, they, resonate. They're, they're Nefesh, um, the dedication. their dying al Kiddush Hashem. Uh, the stories are very. Um, uh, real, tangible, I think of Rabbi Akiva a lot. I mean, maybe it's, it's, it's a repeated story. Most people know the story of Rabbi Akiva's demise, but um, we'll see. It will it, become this... They set the standard in history for doing the right thing, even potentially, uh, even if that means dying. Sometimes you'd have to die. and I, 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 It's not something that people generally talk about. On Shabbos, I spoke about death and how when we confront death, we actually appreciate life more. And um, I, when guiding Masada, asked that question, what would you die for? And one of the things I, I'll take on from groups and talk about and, and it's a challenging question. Would they die for anything? What do they really hold by? What, are they, what would we die for? We talked, about, we talked about Shasa Shmad, we talked about the three uh, major Averas that a person's supposed to die, Yaharek v'aliavor. he can't transgress. Um, and we'll, we'll see, we were put to the test many, many times repeatedly through, 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 through history. Uh, the bracha that said, one says, uh, you know, chasm you shouldn't know from such things, but if a person's forced with having to dial al Hashem, there's a bracha to say ahead of time. There's actually a couple different nuschaos that I'm familiar with. There's lekadesh shimcha berabim, to sanctify your name in public, is an actual bracha that you say. Um, or lekadesh shmo berabim, in the singular, like that, um, to sanctify his name in in, uh, in public. The, um, the brisker. The brisker, Talmud uh, Chacham, uh, was facing a firing squad, and um, they uh, counted down as they're about to kill him, and he said the bracha. He said it with kavana, eyes closed. And right as they got it, three, two, one, he timed it perfectly. Barab briskers are known for being very, very exact. And a strange occurrence took place. All of their rifles jammed simultaneously, and the brisker looked at the firing squad, and he he went like this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have a okay. Um, Hadrian, that's Okay. Hadrian. That's where the whole hand signals got came from. The whole thing That's it. That's it. Exactly. Now Hadrian dies in the year one thirty eight. It's, like, it's about three years after the Bar Bar-Kochva was crushed. And the new Caesar is going to be quite a figure and somebody that we're gonna hear about. His name is Antoninus Pius. Uh, he's a celebrated figure, uh, certainly in our text. Um, now, initially, initially he seems like a reasonable enough. I mean, as far as the Romans go, they're not exactly our good friends, but um, he is, he doesn't, doesn't get rid of any of the decrees. And remember, there were all these harsh decrees, no Shema, no learning Torah, uh, no mitzvahs to speak of. Um, but he doesn't add any new decrees. So I guess maybe the Jews are looking at this sort of uh, hopefully and expectantly. Uh, not, not terrible. The um, governor remains, Turnus Rufus, at least one of the Turnus Rufuses, is the governor in, in now, by now desolate Palestina, and those of you who weren't here, we talked about Hadrian and changed the name to eradicate any association with, which, with the Jewish people, and now he takes this neutral name, Palestina. Um, Pernus Rufus is a bad guy, and he will find, he's, he's continually on the hunt for what he calls Jewish rebels, of course, just by being Jewish, as that's enough to be considered a rebel from the Roman Empire's uh, perspective. The days... Following Bar and following the death of the 10 martyrs are generally understood, the Gemara in tells us, as cursed. Everything is bad. And they, they, the Gemara elaborates. Wine, they make wine, it turns sour. Uh, they produce flax, pishtan, which is what, we, what they made clothes out of, and, the, and their flax spoils. There's famine, there's pestilence, there's flooding, there's fire, there's every, every bit of misfortune. It's almost California. The, um, I, I, in the early 90s, my folks, is, my folks are from California, and, and uh, we were on our way to making Aliato to Shell, and that's where you make Aliato. And I called my... Um, oh, it was right after, there was a whole spate of things. There was the Rodney King riots, and the flash floods in Malibu Canyon, and there was an earthquake, and fire. I was, the whole place was tumbling into the oceans, the Pacific Ocean. And I, I think it was after the earthquake, I called up my mom to see that everything was okay, and then she said, everything's fine. And I said, so are you going to be making Aliyah now, Mom? You know, how, what, is it, what does it take? What does it take? How much how much misfortune can you, uh, can you endure? The, um, the Jews who survived this Dor Hashmad, this, this, uh, this, this generation that's endured this uh, immense persecution... Are, they've survived, but you've got survivor's guilt and they live in fear, constant fear for their lives. Uh, they're in a constant state of terror. The Medrash tells us that the Romans for sport, like to do the following. They would take um, iron balls and then heat them till they were white hot from the fire and then um, find a random Jew and put the white balls that were hot and with fire under their armpits. Uh, They would... um, Sweat. No sweat would be the least of your problems under those circumstances. They would take these very tiny slivers of reed from from the river, and they would stick them under Jews' fingernails. Tiny little things, excruciatingly painful, just to watch the Jews writhe in agony. The Sifra tells us the story of Rabbi Yeshua ben Korcha, one of the surviving rabbis. His father, of course, was... We've mentioned we've seen him before, Rabbi Yeshua ben Korcha. He arguably concealed the identity of his father to protect his own neck. Uh, He he wasn't called by his father's name. He was called, rather, by ben Korcha because his father had famously been bald. His father was Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Yeshua ben Korcha sits learning... And as the story tells us, suddenly, um, there's, a, there's a terrible noise. And they think that it's the end. And they're terrified. And they turn around, thinking that Roman soldiers are approaching, and they see that it's just leaves from the trees rustling. And the pasuk in Vayikra that describes the klala, the curse, the osam kol alei midaf the They'll be pursued by every loose leaf, and there's nobody really pursuing them, comes true in their days. As we see, that we've mentioned this before, that the visions of the Klala are coming true, unfolding for Klal Yisrael. These are the days that it's very dark, very dark period for Klal Yisrael. Uh, it's not better, not that, not that we have uh, so much compassion for the Christians with, with their, as, as, they, as they branch into increasing Avodah Zarah, but it's during this period that Antoninus, will commit the fourth massacre. We keep talking about Christians are wiped out, and then they come back, and then they're wiped out. And so he commits the fourth massacre, and then years pass, and they resurge, and he wipes out, wipes them out the fifth time. And they just keep coming back for more. They're gluttons for punishment. After Rabbi Kiva dies, Rabbi Shemem ben Gamliel finally takes the title Nosi. We've seen about him in deference to Rabbi Kiva, He was ben Nosi. Now there's no reason to defer. You remember that Rebbe 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 Shemuel Gamaliel is described as the sole survivor of Betar. He somehow miraculously got away as everybody else fell in the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. And he and the Chachamim in general remain beneath the radar. They live discreet lives. They live in scattered villages because if you congregate too much you're going to attract attention from the Romans. And they go to... Usha, not all of them together, but there's a call in Usha for everybody, all Jews wherever they're living, to go out and to and to learn. And some of them gather in Usha. And what we find in this period, this is we're talking about the mid to late period of the Tanaim. We find some of the greatest, most inspiring uh, people who lived the Tanaim, and we're going to be hearing about them. Uh, people of immense stature. Uh, whose lives are legendary, understandably. And it's ironic, you think about this, that the hardest times sometimes produce the greatest people. And uh, that's not coincidental. Sometimes we respond well to adversity. The opposite's also true. Sometimes, when things are at least materially and evidently good, it's the worst for the Jews. I'm thinking of modern day America. You know what I'm talking about? When, when, when we have a society that's it's essentially accepting of Qal Yisrael and where they can achieve a certain level of material comfort, then they assimilate in droves. And it does not, it's not, does not bode well. It doesn't produce high caliber people. And sadly, when bad things happen to us, sometimes we rise to the occasion more than we would have otherwise. That's certainly we see that in this, in, this, uh, in this generation, how adversity is strengthening the Torah. Uh, you remember that the Gedolim would go and make visits to Rome to appease the Caesar. Well, that, that practice is still happening. And so the current Gedolim, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, Rabbi Yossi, they make a trip to Rome. They actually, uh, while they're there, the Caesar's daughter is about to, uh, um, is, is being attacked. She's being, actually they realize what's happening and she's being attacked by a shade. By a demon, demonic force, and because of their uh, knowledge of Kabbalah, they're able to save her life. And Caesar is eternally grateful for their uh, for, the, for their kind act, and he shows them his king's treasury. Takes them to the back room, to the treasure, to the treasure rooms, and he tells them, "Welcome the back." He tells them, um, "Help yourself, boys. Take whatever you'd like." He says to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Rabbi Yossi Bar, bar, bar Halafda, and um, they're not interested in treasures. They're not interested in making up with with rewards in this world. All they take is um, the documents from Hadrian, held over from Hadrian, that were the documents of the Xera. And effectively, by taking the documents and destroying them, they nullify all those Xeras. it's a fantastic scene, but all that horrific—we talked about this a lot yesterday. Uh, you can't, you can't have a Bruce Mila, You can't keep Shabbos. You can't learn Torah. They simply walk off with the document, burn it, and the Jews now are are spared the um, the, the, the harsh decrees. Uh, and the concern is, even though right now Antoninus Pius is not acting on the Xeras, but who knows? Maybe a future Caesar would reinstate them. All right. It's a nice story, but I thought that's not how the Roman government uh, works. I once they made the... They made the uh, decree that it was nullified. Apparently, apparently the, um, that was true when they were given that task to a person. Uh, so this These were just general is not entrusted to one individual, and then it's just a document. And once you have the document, you burn the document, the the, the decree is also nullified. Aaron, Anjali? Rebbe Akiva, get rid of Shadim in the world? There is such a source like that. Apparently not, though. Apparently not. Sorry, uh, I'm not sure what the answer is to that. Julian? Does it mean attacked by a demonic force? I don't know exactly. Not being a master of demonic forces myself. But we know that, listen, the Gemara and tells us that there are so many demons out there. If we would um, perceive them... And we would look to our left and look to our right and see every step that we take in this world. There would be literally hundreds of thousands of them. We wouldn't get out of bed in the morning. We'd be so terrified. So apparently they're out there. You ever stub your toe? Ah, ah. Are these things recorded in um, like secular history, like the story with uh, Rabbi Yossi and rubbish? No, that's from Chazal. That's from Chazal, I don't think, even though it's a fair question, many of our stories appear, I've mentioned this too, sometimes, especially the historically relevant stories you'll find in the Roman archives, I mentioned how conspicuous it was that there was not that much on the Bar Kokhba revolt in the Roman empires, and I suggested, not my theory, it's it's, it's a very accepted theory in academia today, uh, why would they not cover the Bar Kokhba revolt, in great detail at least? It was an embarrassment for them. So they're not interested in writing up something that that gave them, effectively, a black eye. The, uh... Yeah. It was during this visit that Rabbi Yossi, when he's in the treasure house of the king, finds something quite extraordinary. I've mentioned this. What does Rabbi Yossi find? He finds the the bloody, uh... The parochus. You remember the parochus? When, when um, Titus, when Titus, the uh, general who later became the Caesar, goes in before he destroys the temple, he stabs the parochus, and Hashem makes a miracle, and the parochus bleeds. That's by the Korban base and Mikdash. So Rabbi testifies to seeing the, drug, the, the blood drops on the parochus. Parochus is the cover over the area of the Kodesh Kodoshim, even though there was no Aaron Kodesh, no, no Aaron in the second double period, they still had parochus hanging in the Dvir, in the Holy of Holies. And they stabbed it and he stabbed it, that was the story that we told. Now the Sanhedrin was in Usha, and then for a very brief period, it go, around this time, and we were about the 140s of the uh, Common Era, the Sanhedrin now shifts back to Yavna. The idea, remember Yavna after the destruction was the continuation of Torah, and then they had to disband Yavna when the, when the oppression became too strong. Well, they want to go back to Yavna because Yavna is the south, and the south is Yehuda, and they would like as best they could to re- re- revive Jewish life down in the South, if not Yerushalayim, at least in its vicinity, and um, that's gonna be short-lived, that's not gonna, they're gonna have to go back to Usha, but it's during this period, on Tubaav in about the year 150, that Antoninus Pius actually does something quite great. The, his first great act, he allows the Jews who've been petitioning for exactly this, to go back to the city of Beitar and what have we been waiting for in Beitar? He wants to go back to Beitar because this entire time for let's say approximately 15 years the bodies of the martyrs of the Kedoshim oh, who died al Kiddush Hashem in Beitar were still propped up on these, on, on these yes. trees and they had not decomposed all of these years but they're not given proper burial, and you remember the Jewish people, we take care of each other in life, we take care of each other in death, and we were not permitted to do so under the Roman decree. And finally, Antoninus Pius permits them to go back and take them and give them proper burial, and Chazal set something for the record, because of the great miracle uh, that Keshachar permitted this, and all all the while their bodies did not decompose, um, Chazal established for the generations a new blessing. And know the, some of you must know the blessing, no? Some of you presumably might have even said this blessing just a few minutes ago. It's called, we say it, it's the fourth blessing. It's the one blessing that's the Rabbonon in Birka Samazon. The first three are Diyaraisa. And the third, Hatov v'hametiv, is an added bracha that Chazal and Misaken established specifically as a memorial uh, remember, as as a, as, a, as a commemoration of the dead of Beitar, the idea was Hashem does good that they didn't the bodies didn't decompose. that finally Hashem allowed their bodies to be buried, and it's bathka in benching wine. Why? why why should we do this when we after we've finished eating and are satiated? The uh, Chazal explained that the it's the greatest expression of simcha is thanking Hashem for taking care of us even after the fact, especially after the fact, we give thanks to Kaddish Baruch Hu and in our darkest times, as this period in history is, I mentioned, I mentioned yesterday, why is this such a dark chapter? The Jews are finally reconciling themselves to the long, hard exile ahead of them. And they have few illusions that they can be able to go back and rebuild the base of Mikdash, reestablish the glory of Yerushalayim, and even within this very, very depressing, potentially depressing period, uh, they know Simcha, they see a Kaddish Baruch Hu's with them. Uh, it's during this time period that we, we've already met him. We saw, it, we were at his bris, and we saw, it, we've seen him encounter with the Kaddish Baruch Hu, that something terribly, uh, something terrible happens to one of the great sages of, of Klal Yisrael. His name was Elisha Ben Abuya, and he's, a, he's an intriguing personality, and honestly, one almost senses in Chazal, there's it's such a mystery about him. How could such a person exist? Do you, are you familiar with the story? You've learned the Yagadate, it's the Gemara and Chagiga, but it comes up in lots of places. If you don't know the story, it's a, it's, it's a knockout. It's, it's a wowser and it raises cashes. And I'm not pretending to have all the answers, but we'll at least survey the story. It's part of history. Um, we understand that there were Gedoli and Tyre, And four of them, in this, sometime prior to Bar four of them had entered the Pardes. We mentioned this briefly in history. Arbenniknesu, the some some of these a b-pardes. They go into the Pardes, which ultimately translates as the Orchard. Uh, it's understood as the sublime, heavenly site where Kaddish Baruch Kisi HaKavod is located. It's the location of the Maizim Rekova, the Divine Chariot. It's also Pardes is a um, is the equivalent, it's the source of the English word paradise. Paradise. Because there's an association with pardes and Ganadin, it's the supreme uh, location, it also stands for something. Pardes represents four levels of understanding text, and, and Kabbalistically it has immense importance, four levels of understanding our holy text. The first the pay, of course... Psha, the simplest level of understanding—you've heard this. Yeah. Um, remember part of our classes. What I'm trying to include in the history is, um, his, is Judaism's greatest hits. That everything that you really should know to be a knowledgeable, uh, understanding Jew—you really. Uh, this is uh, this is one of those things that should be at the on the, on the final exam for this class. Parades belongs. There isn't one. Don't worry. Um, but uh, but but if there were to be, then um, yeah, you know, I'm happy to make one if anybody wants me to. The anyway, shot is the simplest level of meaning. Reish could be often meant rendered as remes. Some say reios. It's the hint. It's the um, hinted, subtler, illusory, illusion-filled, uh, second level of meaning. Wait, wait, what was the the second, the latter? Reios, reios. The third level is even less direct meaning. It's called, Dalit is called, drushos, drush, the the clearly non plain meaning, the expounded meaning of the text. And then samich at the end stands for sod, the secretive, Kabbalistic meaning of the text. And we understand that so much more is going on than meets the eye. Whenever you're encountering a pasuk, uh, contemplate it with fear and trepidation, because there's so much going on there, more than we realize. So the four go into the pardes. Ben Azai, who we met before, he was the one who married Kiva 's daughter only to divorce her because his true love was Torah. Remember him? Yeah. So Ben Azai, who teaches us, he has some of the most famous Mishnahos in Pirkei Avos, he teaches us mitzvah, goreiris, mitzvah. You get into the mode of keeping one mitzvah, it stimulates you, it causes you to keep another mitzvah. Uh, he teaches us that the reward for keeping a mitzvah Schar mitzvah is a mitzvah. Shem loves you so much, the best reward he can possibly give you is more mitzvahs. And conversely, the, the reward for doing a transgression is the, is the transgression itself. You don't need punishment. Just staring ourselves in the mirror, contemplating how what we could have been and seeing our transgressions, that's the most grueling punishment for the neshama. Um, he enters the pardes, and what, what's his fate? He tzitz, he peaks does. And his neshama leaves his body. And according to one shot, I think I mentioned here as well, his his body, his his neshama leaves his body. Um, He is so enraptured by the immense spirituality, he doesn't want to return to the the imperfect physical world. As it were, his neshama is already reunited with his maker. That's great. And there are other other explanations of what happens to him. Um, Ben Zoma was another student of Rabbi Kiva Ben Zoma, who also famous, also famous. psukim in uh, famous uh, Mishnayos and Pirkei Avos. It's Benzoma who asks, "Ezuhu, Azu Chacham, who's a wise man?" One who's happier with his who, "No, e, who's a wise man?" Oh, one who learns from everyone." "Ezuh Chacham, Halome, Nicole, yeah. Adam, somebody who learns from everybody." "Ezuh Gibor, who's a who's a mighty man? Who's a who's a who's a courageous man?" Um, he's Gabriel Yitzhah, somebody who overcomes his Yitzhahara. Uh, we, he asks, probably most famously, Julian, you got this one. Ezuhu Ashir, who's a wealthy man? Julian, no, we lost you. Okay. David, you know this? Azu Ashir, who's wealthy? Eli. Who's wealthy in this world? Aaron? Aaron? Right. one who is content with what he has. Happiness is subjective. If you appreciate what you have, so you, uh, you're not constantly looking around. We know many wealthy people who are utterly discontent discontented with their possessions. They're not wealthy at all. It is a state of mind. And Aiz who's honored, one who honors others. Benzoma um, he peeks and he snaps. He snaps. His mind. His mind uh, loses it. That's Benzoma. That's Benzoma. Um, Acher, Acher, who's called Alicia Benabuya he enters the Pardes, and the very uh, out the the, uh, the metaphorical way that the in Chagiga describes it, who cuts us benetios. He cuts down saplings, if the metaphor is a pardase, like an orchard with lots of trees and saplings. He cuts down trappings, which we're going to see in the course of his life, takes on a horrific literal meaning how he cuts down saplings. Um, he destroys the pardase. He goes out and he becomes an apocorus. He goes out and becomes a heretic. Only Rabbi Akiva, we mentioned, emerges, the shalom. He and only he doesn't look at the makkum the place of the shechina. We mentioned how they could go there. I'd like to go to the parties. how come I can't? And you can't either. What, what's preventing us today? We're tmeim. And in order to get there, you need to pronounce the Kaddish Baruch holy name. And to do that, you need Ashes to the Paraduma. So it's not that we, there are some individuals who have the potential of doing this, but lacking the, uh, lacking purity nowadays, um, they could destroy the world if they say a Kaddish Barucho's name in a state of Tuma. Uh, so we don't do that. The Arizal teaches that. Now, yeah, uh, could a woman do it? Woman's tricky. A woman has tricky status with regards to Tumantara because of her special uh, way. of Kaddish Baruch makes her body and the uh, constant menstruation. But in theory, she could. One hasn't heard of such a thing. Uh, it's not, not necessarily prohibited. Now, the fact that you have this is really the Kasha of Alicia Benabuya. You have you have this person of immense stature who is righteous, who is knowledgeable, who goes off the derech and you just don't understand it. He really fits the, the pure definition of an upper course. You've heard the expression apicurus. Epicurean uh, is, is a Greek philosophy, but the idea of an upper course is somebody who goes off, goes off the derech and, and, um, and, and violates the Torah. You know that today most people in the world are not really apicursing? I mean, a lot of people who have upper courses ideas. And you've heard people say, "Oh, you can't say that. That's apikores, right?" But they're not really apikores in the Tino They're they're captive babies because they don't know what they're talking about. To be a certifiable apikores, you have to first know the Torah and then reject the Torah. I am reminded. Let's say I'm thinking of um, you know women who consider themselves Orthodox women, and um, they expose their elbows, and their neckline is too low, and their knees, their, their knee line is too high. And therefore, they're going around in a state of of of, of immodesty, calling themselves religiously observant. What are they? Like, what is their status? So, some people say, oh, they're apikorsim because they're knowledgeable, they're orthodox, but they're going against Torah. They're violating the halacha. A lot of women like this. No, we all know some, um, right? I, I I would counter, they're not up-a-coursing. Most of those women are simply ignorant. They're they think they're knowledgeable, but they've, they've mislearned the halacha. They think it's legitimate. They have role models who dress the same or don't dress the same, uh, and um, as the case may be, and they think that it's legitimate. A married woman without a head covering—same, same story. There were Rebbetzins without head coverings in a, not that long ago, but uh, but it's not legitimate. But that's not apocorus apocorus is somebody at the stature, for example, of Elisha Ben Abuya, who really knew better. He knew everything, and he went off. And his rejection of Torah is shocking. And Chazal uh offers several explanations for his heresy you can imagine how devastating for morale this was in these fraught days how could this be yeah, can you imagine somebody somebody who was your role model who you asked shyless to he passed in halacha and then he himself went off the Derek. so the yushalmi tells us the story that early on before his bris, even when his mother was pregnant with him uh, so she passed a place of the Zarah, and the Ushami tells us that the smell of the sacrifice to the gods was so potent, the scent penetrated to the fetus like snake venom, and somehow had some kind of a, a deleterious long-term impact. That's one explanation, and maybe all of these are true, maybe a little bit of each of these explain uh, his fate. We mentioned how at his bris, remember Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yeshua were learning Torah, and the fire was surrounding them, and the father said, oh, if Abuya said, if this is going to be the fate of Torah, I want my son to learn Torah. Meaning, he started out, even before he started out, his father designated for life of Torah for all the wrong reasons. It was lo We mentioned yesterday that he had seen whose tongue being dragged in the garbage heap? Chutzpis, one of the Asara, Hamaturgaman, remember the Mishnah that we're just doing in Makos now, Targum, right? He translated everything and he said, How could it be that the tongue that offer these pearls of wisdom, Zotorav, Zotschara, this is Torah, this is its reward, that there's no justice in the world? The Gemara in Kedushin suggests, Alternately, the Gemara tells a story of a boy. There are two mitzvahs. Let's start with this. There are two mitzvahs that the Torah explicitly promises. If you keep these mitzvahs, you'll have a richus yamim. You'll have good, long life. What are the two mitzvahs? Uh, Avedim. Kibud Avedim. Honoring your parents. And sharing away the mother bird. And sending away the mother bird. And sending away the what? Sending away the mother bird before collecting the eggs from the nests. Yeah, those are two mitzvahs, and and those are the uniquely those are the two mitzvahs that explicitly the Torah promises long days. It's a famous story. Okay, so the father asks the son, son, fetch for me those eggs up in the tree. The son climbs the tree, and as he's about to he grabs the eggs and um, thereby, at their, at, excuse, before he grabs the eggs, he sends the mother bird away, and then he takes the eggs. So in one fell swoop, at one instant, the boy is simultaneously fulfilling the mitzvah of kibbutah, he's honoring his father, and shiluach hakein, he's sending the mother bird away. He, as, at that exact point in time as he's reaching for the eggs, he loses balance, falls to his death. And is watching the whole thing, and he's thinking, this is more than ironic. The two mitzvahs, the guarantee, long life, one person is fulfilling them both simultaneously, what are the odds, and he dies, and this also is, is an, an explanation for his heresy, for his going off the derech. In that Gemara, in that Gemara, there's a certain Rabbi Yaakov, this is part of the discussion, who teaches who teaches there that, um, oh, I'm going ahead of myself, I realize, but okay. Um, yeah, it's Rabbi Yaakov says, there's no reward in this world. Meaning, the fact that we often don't see things line up, and it doesn't seem that uh, good things happen to good pe- people and bad things happen to bad people, it doesn't seem like uh, that, that the world is innately just to our shallow perception of things. And he said, because in this world, it's not about reward and punishment. Everything that Akash Baruch puts in our, in our, in our uh, purview is there specifically to help us to get us to be mitakin, that which we need to be mitakin to fix in this life. But uh, it, it, we can't size things up. We're not qualified. And it turns out that Rav Yaakov in the Gemara Kedushin is identified as none other than the grandson of Elisha ben Abuyin. So if only the grandfather had had the wisdom that his son eventually came to, perhaps he wouldn't have gone off the dera. Um, one explanation of Yochanan gives us regarding Chagiga is he looked right at the place where the Srina was, and you, you get too close, and it's dangerous. Um, and probably the central explanation in the Gemara, at least, what's indicated is that what, what really sent Elisha Ben off, he found in the Pardes the major angel whose name was Metatron sitting and writing and he says I have a tradition quite distinctly that angels don't have human properties they don't do things that, human, that humans do specifically angels don't sit and Metatron is sitting and he says okay, so what's the big deal? no, it's a big deal because if you have an angel what's an angel after all? an angel is hardwired to do a Kaddish Baruch Hu's bidding exactly what a Kaddish Baruch Hu tells him so, Metatron is breaking the rules, but they don't have freedom of choice. They don't have the Chiruchovshis. They don't have a Yitzhahara. So, the only thing that can possibly explain what Metatron is doing if he's sitting down in violation of the rules of, of angeldom is he must have a different authority and must be rebelling against the Kadesh Baruch. Hu. The system actually is called Gnosticism with a G. A Gnostic person is somebody who believes in Akadosh Baruch Hu, but also believes, this might sound familiar, this is found, for example, in certain elements of Christian theology. Akadosh Baruch Hu runs the world. He created the world and he runs the world. But implicit in this is their view, and this is from our perspective complete heresy, but this is their view, this is a, a, a Gnostic view, that there is another force in the world, a dark force that's independent of Hashem, and acts on its own. I'm thinking of the, you know, the simplistic view of the devil as being somehow the opposite of an angel or opposite of a sham who's working to counteract the Kaddish Baruch Hu. It's based on the um, our view of the Satan, the Satan, but the Satan is an angel. And the Satan's not free to do his own bidding. He does exactly what the Kaddish Baruch Hu sets him up to do, but he's never independent of the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Akher has the notion by seeing Metatron sitting that maybe there's a dark force in the world um, in fact, this is all based on the Marsha explains this. R- Rav Haigon has, has a whole stickle here. Um, he says this was very classically part of, in those days, Zoroastrian beliefs. Uh, Zoroastrians were very dominant in Bavel and where a lot of the Jews were living, and even in Eretz Israël, when found them. They believed, they had Gnostic beliefs in two gods, the Magi gods called Hormis and Ahormin, and they were, one was a source of good and light, and the other one was a source of evil and darkness. And Achir thought that Metatron was a Hormin. And the Marashah explains, he comments on this whole episode, he says, you know, after having these thoughts, Achir dispels them and he says, no, 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 no. I didn't understand what I saw. Hashem is all-powerful and all-good, and Metatron is not independent of a Kaddish Baruch So then why, why would Achir be faulted? The Marashah suggests he should never have even, even had a Havamina. In the mind of such a person, so perfect in Torah, so knowledgeable in Torah, he should never have even entertained the possibility that there'd be a dark side independent of Hashem. And the fact that he did that, he was punished. And the Gemara is very sharp, and I encourage you to learn the Gemara. Every word, every choice of phrase is significant. I'll, 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 I'll summarize the the, the, the Gemara. I'll i mention one last explanation, but about his heresy and how we make sense of it. Rabbi Tzadok Cohen, one of the great Hasidic masters of the nineteenth century, says the following: After he has experienced the Meis Merkavah experience, Achir actually became arrogant. He thought because he had seen, he'd witnessed the ultimate, sublime, transcendent v- vision. Um, this made. Further observance of Torah unnecessary. Sort of shades of Nietzsche's Superman. If you're familiar with Nietzsche, also from the 19th century, Nietzsche had the idea that there's certain kinds of exceptional people in the world who are sort of better than human, ordinary human morality. Okay, he wrote a he he has a play called called Superman that deals with such an idea. Anybody familiar with um, Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, one of the classics also of 19th century literature, Crime and Punishment, the protagonist is Raskolnikov who murders an old woman for no reason other than just to say that he could and did. Influenced by Nietzsche, this idea, and then it turns out he was anything but Superman. As, 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 the, as the, but the idea that, you know, I'm different. A lot of people have this Superman complex. You know, I, I'm better than all that. So that's how Rabbeinu Tzadok explains Akhir's thought. He said, I've been to the Pardes. I don't need to, I'm not, I'm not limited by the rules. And um, one of the lessons we are supposed to derive is in Torah: a Gadol is subject to the rules, just like everybody else. We don't have a Pope. In Judaism, there's no Pope. Nobody is above it all. Most Rabbeinu, we see, had made mistakes. So Elisha ben Abuya Gemara tells us, goes to a Tarbus Roa, goes to a bad place, bad culture, and finds a prostitute. He finds a harlot. And he propositions her. And the girl is shocked. She recognizes him. What would you do? I mean, hopefully you wouldn't know from such things, but imagine a prostitute... Right, who knows the guttled the door. Remember in these days, the prostitutes were from too. They knew, there was no old people, nobody was rushed. And she recognized the guttled the and she, he's propositioning her. And she says, um, aren't you Elisha Ben-Abuya? Rabbi Elisha Ben-Abuya? And um, his answer is a wordless answer. It's Shabbos. He, without answering her, bends down Uproots a radish from the ground, which is a, one of the Avos Malacha He uproots a radish from the ground and presents it to her. And she's so shocked, the Gadalador has just propositioned her. She's a prostitute. And now he's Mechal Shabbos before Hesia, openly violating Shabbos. And that's his way of saying, and she looks at him and she says, Acher, who? He's another. He can't be the same man. And that's where his name comes from. A prostitute re- renames him Acher. He's another. Can't be. And, yeah, was, what is she saying? She's saying, I recognize, oh, it can't be. It's, it's, a, it's an evil twin imposter. Or is she saying, no, this man is so changed fundamentally that he, he really is another, even though he is himself. Um, Acher doesn't show up. You know, when Jews go after the derech, we're going to see this often in history, they go spectacularly off. They don't do it in anything less than grand style. So, Africa goes up and becomes enemy, public enemy number one of Qal Yisrael. The Romans force the Jews to work on Shabbos. They're against Jewish observance. They forced the Jews, to, it's very clever. Good. They force the Jews to work on Shabbos. So, the Jews, you know, we're a tenacious bunch. Uh, they're going to force us to work on Shabbos, so what do they do? They find ways of violating the Rabbonans instead of the Arises. Because if you have to work, at least you should not violate the major avos malacha. You can, you can violate the lesser ones and thereby um, get around the, the grave problems. But the Romans then take Acher on as an advisor to them and he tells them how to force the Jews, not just to violate the Rabbonans, but in their laws they now force the Jews, because of his advice, to violate the Torah prohibitions themselves, Acher finds young boys, and um, he sees, he finds which ones are the most successful in learning Torah, and he murders them, giving new meaning to what the how it was described in the metaphor that he when he went to the parties, he cut down saplings, almost literally he's cutting down the promising future of Klal Yisrael, murdering the young boys. He would go to schools, to Cheder, and he would find the boys there. And he said, um, what are you doing today, kids? And he knew how to talk to them. He was a charming individual. And said, hey, what, what are you learning there? And the boys said, oh, we're learning Uh And they said, oh, that's interesting. Why do you need that? And the boys said, well, we're learning Torah. These words are our, our life, our life uh, source. And he said, but you don't need that. You, young man, you're going to be a builder when you grow up what do you need Torah for? You need to know how to move the, make bricks and mortar. That's, all, that's what's good for you. And the kid would say, yeah, right. I don't need Torah. i leave and go learn the, uh, become an apprentice to a builder. He said, and you, you're going to be a carpenter, he said, he said to another kid. And he said, you're going to be a trapper and you're going to be a tailor. And if he didn't murder the promising uh, young Torah students, he sent them off to acquire a trade. Um, he would Does go ap- out. Was that? We understand that, um, well, the Mission Pirkei says, I, I don't want to slide into this, cause, and I, I recognize you even have that gleam in your eye when you ask the question. I know you. Um, and it's a, but it's a reasonable question, and so I'll give you a little bit, but don't let this become a dialogue. Because it, 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 it has that potential. I do this in my class on Torah and Career. So I, I don't neglect this topic, but I'll say off the cuff that... Um, the, Mishna, the, the, the Mishnah in Pirkei Abos tells us, Yavchit HaMat Torah Derech Eretz, the simple shot is Torah should be accompanied by a livelihood. Uh, we know the Mechaber in the Shulchan Aruch Paskins, the Jewish man is the breadwinner in the family, Yavchit Parnassah. Nevertheless, Torah is primary. It was, is, and always will be our mainstay. In the modern world today, that's become backwards because careers become so so central to people's identity. You can go in the Western world and ask somebody the existential question, what are you? And automatically that's understood. What job do you have? That's backwards. And so for Jews to be primarily dedicated to their, their career at, over the Torah learning is backwards. Parnas is something that we have to do to some degree that much after saying, it's all that pronounces what he's saying, that's, that's a trade. That's up of course. That's the American mindset. He, back in these days that was shocking. Um, he would designate talmudic Echokhamim and he would be most of them. He would go to the Roman authorities and say this one is a Rasha, uh, you know, imprisoned him. He, he stole. And often when the Romans would imprison somebody that usually meant death eventually. The basical comes down the Gemara tells us, and, 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 and quotes a pasuk in Yirmiyahu. The pasuk is, Shuvu vanim Shovavim, Which is, you know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu's attitude towards sinners in the world. At the end of the day, Hashem wants our tshuva. And even the greatest villain, even the most foul individual in the world, HaKadosh uh, Baruch Hu keeps the door open. Everybody can make tshuva. And that's expressed in this pasuk, Shuvu vanim Shovavim, return my mischievous sons. And it's as if the Shekhinah itself is coming down and saying, Come back, my wayward children. Come, little Adolf. Stalin, you knucklehead, you. Right, come on back, make tshuva, and you'll come back into the fold. That's the implication. And then the Gemara goes on. Not you, Acher. No room for you up here in these heavens. And my image is Acher also. Here's the first part of the plus Shuva vanim Shovavim, and he says, Yes, Hashem, I miss you, I love you, and starts running back and is confronted with a big palm of, of Hashem's hand, as it were, not that Hashem has any human attributes. Uh, and no, chutz mi acher, not you acher, um, which now is difficult for us. How do we understand this Gemara? Um, the En Yaakov says, acher knew Hashem's glory in a way that few ever knew, and he rebelled. He is the prototype, as we said, of the pure apocorus And so there's no room for him. But the kash is still very strong. We know, the Medrash says explicitly and famously, "Shari Tshuva, the gates of repentance are never locked. So Acher should be allowed to make Tshuva too. Marsha says like this, Had Acher made Tshuva, indeed it would have been accepted. He could have made Tshuva. The Baskal is just telling him that Hashem is not encouraging it everybody Hashem wants you to come back you're not cordially invited Acher, but neither are you being prevented and had he taken the opportunity he could have made shuva. and arguably one of the most shocking aspects of the whole story is that Acher, among his students had a famous student by the name of Rebbe Meir Balanes who we're going to certainly be hearing about and Rebbe Meir, even after Acher went off the Derach continued learning Torah from him. And partly he's motivated by trying to makarav his wayward rebbe. In one story, and there are many stories, in one story, Acher is riding horseback on Shabbos, which is a rabbinic prohibition, and they get to the Tchum Shabbos, which is another, some say it's a Minagis. It's not, it's not a Deirisis, it's, it's a Minag. You're not allowed to go more than al Paim Amos, 2,000 cubits beyond your Shabbos residence. And Rabbi Meir was about to leave his Tum Shabbos, go beyond that area. Acher was certainly going to go, go leave. And so Acher you have to appreciate the irony of this, of, and, and the multi-layered irony of this agarata. The, the Gemara says, he quotes uh, Acher saying, <laughs> go back, you're about to leave your Tchum Shabbos. Meaning Acher deeply, internally, was from enough that he cared that Rebbe Mer would violate Shabbos. He had apparently closed the book on himself. I'm beyond redemption, but you, Rebbe Mer, you, you're you about to, you know, mess up and I'm concerned about you. So something good was still within him, at least in his concern for others. So he says to Rebbe Mer, Chazer and Rebbe Meir without, get this out, Eli before you walk out Rebbe hear, hear Meir responds he says without missing a beat Chazor V'cha Rebbe which is a play on words he says yeah you go back too Rebbe which is another way of saying you make tshuva too and he would constantly remind his Rebbe you can come back if the doors are not closed the, the, uh, you, 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 you can make tshuva um the Gemara asks the logical kasha: How did Rabbi Meir continue learning with his with, with acher? And um, a couple of explanations, each has its own drasha. On the one explanation, he offers tzmara matzah, He found the date pre achal garina zarak. He ate the fruit and threw away the pit. Meaning, Rabbi Meir had the discretion to know the good stuff, to distinguish the good Torah teachings of his Rebbe, and discard anything that was trafe. Uh, similar but slightly different um, metaphor that he offers. Rimon so matzah, He finds a pomegranate. Tocho achal klipaso zarat. He ate the inside and threw away the the um, the uh, klipa, the the peel on the outside. But again, this is the common common denominator. If you're a high level talmi chacham of the stature of Rabbi Mer, you know how to use your discernment. You can take the good and leave the bad. Um, the Lecha Mission explains that our Gemara actually is defending Rabbi Meir's behavior, but not really justifying it. Rabbi Meir was a great person. The Halacha is it's us or even for an advanced student, even somebody of the dimension of Rabbi Meir, to learn from a Puzzle teacher. Um, the Halacha is like that too. If you perceive that you have a teacher and he's teaching you trife ideas, you'd have to desist from learning from him. And in the world we're living in today, unfortunately, that's, that, that's a Halacha that might be relevant. Yes. But uh, in the Gemara there, it, it explains that Rabbi Meir was actually punished for being with him, but I mean, his heart was in the right place, though, Rabbi Meir. He was doing it Lashem Shemayim, for sure. Does that include a uh, secular teacher? Sure. If he's teaching you things that are traits and they are going to influence you, and we, we delude ourselves. We think, you know, I'm strong. I can listen to all this. Nothing's going to go in. Nothing's going to really influence me. Usually, those people are the most influenced most self-deluded, naive. We're all influenced. There's a halacha, there's a halacha uh, maybe you've heard of in Rambam's Hilchos Deos, the sixth chapter, the first couple halachas. You've heard of it before, right? Mention it. Um, if you learn nothing from me, learn this one. It's the Rambam, Hilchos Deos, Perak Vav, Halacha Aleph and Base. We are, we are influenced by our surroundings, all of us. Uh, the most self uh, motivated, independent thinker. We're influenced by people. So if your rebbe is going to te- teach you certain ideas, it's going to go in. It's going to have an impact. Get away. Rambam says even if it means if there's nobody righteous, go live in a cave. Then you have to do that. Find sadikim. Live among them. Marry at sadikis. Work with sadikim. That will be you. They will influence you. Yeah. What would be consider something that like an academic teacher would teach? Uh, You'd have to use your discretion. Not. It's not always obvious. In my tour guide training class, I was forced in order for my students to become accredited as legal tour guides to submit to the monopoly of the um, tourism ministry in Israel, which is radically secular, very anti-Tayra. I tried as best I could to upgrade the curriculum. And each category was its its own set of problems. Some of them indeed were powerful. When we learned about the flora and fauna of Israel, even though sometimes there were certain ideas about courses, it was mostly neutral. Um, When we learned about Christianity, it was actually not, especially since I gave a whole preface that I added to the curriculum that was not in the curriculum, about the halachas and the Jewish view of Christianity, that was actually pretty decent because on a level of da malahashi, you have to know how to answer and speak to apocorosim, you have to know and speak to other people, it's good to be knowledgeable. So actually Christianity, people thought, well that's the most problematic, but I found it okay, even though it was way too much, we had to learn about it, but not terrible. Honestly, the, the, the area that was the most problematic by far in the curriculum that tour guides all study is history. Because history, you know, history oh, history's interesting and that's power of the neutral, that should be no problem. No. How you pre- and this has been one of our running themes in this whole class. How you present, what you present, the distortions potentially presented in history can change the, your whole ha- outlook. Um, in the end... Go ahead, bro. How are the flora and Like, what was Oh, what was Purimana? in there? Oh, well, you get into some geology, you get into certain development of the universe, oh, evolution, right? evolution theory. Um, the Yerushalmi tells us that Acher, as he lays dying, uh, is visited by Rebbe Mer, and Rebbe Meir, on his deathbed begs him, Rebbe, please make tshuva. And Acher's response is to weep and die, and it's ambiguous what happened there, and Rabbi Meir declares, it seems to me he made Shuva. In the end, they daven for him, and uh, and there's a a great story about what happens, seems that even in a couple generations later, the great Rabbi Yochanan, uh, we're going to talk about this, I'll I'll tell you about Rabbi Yochanan when we get to him, he's able to do something for the Neshama of uh, of Acher. But the existence of Acha remains one of the mysteries of history, uh, one, of the, one of the real perplexing chapters. That, um, but it's a possibility, it's a, something that happens. And uh, he, on a certain level, uh, represents a warning to Klal Yisrael. Um, there's a no- speaking of history, uh, there's a great history book that's written just about the same period by a figure that we've mentioned a few times, Reb Yossi ben Chalafta, Uh the great Rabbi Yossi, who is, we're going to hear about him, he is, I'll give you a reference point, in the story of the three sages who speak about the Roman Empire, and one of them is rewarded, one of them is mildly punished, and the other one is uh, has a death sentence put on his head, Rabbi Yossi's in that story, and many others. Well, Rabbi Yossi ben Chalafta, who's who's one of the most mentioned tonight in all of Mishnah, um, his name is, is is pronounced Yose, not Yossi, um, he is the author of a book called the Seder Olam Rabbah, a Tannaedic work that is a chronicle of the of history from Bria Olam, from the creation of the world, and all the dates according to the Jewish calendar, all the way down until the Bar Kochva period. It's our from a remember, Josephus is not a traditional Jew; he's a So this is really the Jewish the first Jewish history book, it's not history as we're used to it. It's not the source for a lot of what we've been talking about here because it's dry and technical. It doesn't really go into most of the stories or the, or the the major figures, but it does does give us, it addresses the age of Yitzchak HaVinu. It's a source, it's an authoritative source. It's in, uh, these are Tanayim. Uh, it tells us the number of years that Yoshua ben Nun was the leader of the Jews. It gives the brevity of the Persian period, which we know uh, contrasts the Christian calendar, which dominates the world, uh, that's the Seder Olam Rabbah. Then there's a there's a, a, a corollary book called the Seder Olam Zuta. Around this time, the Sanhedrin moves back from Yavne to Usha uh, because of the Roman persecution was just there. Those Romans, they just never left it left us alone. Ace of Sonas Yaakov, uh, and so they can't live down in Yehuda, and uh, so they go back to Usha. And in Usha, they make a number of takanos. Last year, the, I took the yeshiva to Usha, and I talked about the Takanos there as we drove through. There's not much to see nowadays, uh, although there is a, a Greek inscription that talks about the Tchum Shabbos, speaking of Tchum Shabbos, the uh, Shabbos boundaries uh, that you could, you could potentially see there on a hike around the national park of Usha. The, um, in Usha, they made um, many takanos because of the exigencies, the difficult times, uh, of, of, of this Shasa Shmad, uh, some of them are very famous, so I'm going to mention them now. In a in Tsubos, we find that people were afraid to keep documents, because you held onto a document, the Romans would come and take it from you, and then if they had the document, they effectively had what they were worth, and, and documents often showed they were IOUs, they were deeds that promised money, and if the Romans took it, then you'd lose your money, so they were afraid to keep documents. So in Usha, uh, with Rabbi Shima the Nosi, he makes a takana. he makes a decree that a woman uh, didn't have to keep her ksuba, excuse me, didn't have to keep her get. She had to have her ksuba. She had to have a but, but if she lost her get, she could, she could still collect her ksuba, which you have to realize is a chidish. Because usually a woman, to collect her ksuba, has to present both documents, but they were afraid. So he said, if she lost her get, it's still valid. She could, she could collect her ksuba. Is that still valid? Yeah. Potentially it's still valid. It's that a woman can collect a ksoupah without a get. Without a get. Without a get. Um, a ba, similarly, a balchov, somebody who's a debtor who's owed money, and ordinarily you have a you have a star, you have a legal document to to, to, to prove that you owe, that the money is owed to you, and this is this is going to be familiar to you from our Gemara. Um, if the shemitah year passes, if you want to collect your debt, you need to possess a. Prozbul, You need the pro's bowl in hand, and comes from Shimy Megamliel in Usha at this time in history, and 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 uh, makes a takana that you could collect your debt even if you don't have the actual prozbul document. That's yeah, it's radical, but you know, radical times call for it. But that's kind of to tomorrow. It, it is, but sometimes you have to. That's why Chazal have a discretionary clause that they can do this if they understand the emergency needs of the time. That's also going against the tort. No, it isn't. Uh, Shemitah in these days are Durbanan anyway therefore Chazal have the authority to determine Shemitah in the Torah but its observance today with base and Mikdash is right now? Mm-hmm. and therefore it's, uh, these kinds of laws are left to the top authorities to be able to determine what they think is irrelevant and unrelated to Kana in Usha in the Rushami we find with immense poverty uh, they were starving to death um, they were misakin when it came to spending money, this is a very famous idea, pertains till today. They made a takana for, for mitzvos, for mitzvos, hamivazves al-yevazvez Somebody who wants to spend his money can only spend up to, but no more than 20%, you find a beautiful esrog in the market, you can't exceed spending 20% of your income on a beautiful esrog. Shema yitz librios. Because if you spend so much, you might actually put yourself in uh, poverty and in need of taking handouts yourself. So on mitzvahs, and this pertains till today, it comes up, it's a topic. At the beginning of the year, I mentioned this by Hilchos Tzedakah. When you give tzedakah, there's a 10% expectation, you give 10% of your, of your income, but no more than 20%, and there are exceptions to that rule. If, you were, if you're Bill Gates, or the equivalent of Bill Gates, you can give out much more than 20%. You're well beyond needing uh, most of your income. Uh, if, if, if there's pikuach nefesh, if there's pityon shvuin, if there are exceptional kinds of mitzvahs, you can also exceed the 20% upper limit. But this is where we find the 20% limit. For the first time, Aaron? I answered it, great. Yeah. Um, also because of poverty, this is Mark Technically, um, according to the halacha, a man is required to support his children until the age of... Six. Which wow. I, I remind my kids of that. They should feel a little more Akarasatov, right? Until they're six. But in Usha they make a takana ad shiigdalu until they become of age. Because they if you sent them out into the streets to go make a living themselves at six years old, they were gonna they would starve to death. So this is the kind of now that the that the fathers of the family, if there are fathers in the family, so many of the fathers have been murdered, but if there are fathers, they have an obligation to to uh, support their children until they grow up, which is a little bit loose and subjective. Uh, if as long. As the, Excellent question. Excellent question. Partly dependent on the culture and the society. Uh, today with um, adolescence being extended well into people's fifties, uh, it could be a very long period with the father supporting the kids, uh, subject to discussion. It's actually a movie that into that rabbi called No, no, no. You still have to teach him a pronosa, but 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 now you support him until he's able, until he's self-sufficient. Um, it's around this time that we find Chachmei Eretz Yisrael reconnecting with. Uh, there's increased numbers of Chachamim who are in Bavel. Remember, Bavel is still is still low profile, but they reconnect. Some of the great figures in Bavel we find out the Tanaim include a Rabbi Yehuda Ben Becerra, not the same Ben Bezera from the previous generations. He has a basting and deceiving. Um, we know that Rabbi Yochanan Asandla, Rabbi Lazar Ben Shmuel, went to learn from him. Um, there's another figure named Avuah de Shmuel, who has a very famous son named Shmuel. Because Avuah de Shmuel means he's called by his son's name. The father of Shmuel uh, will we'll certainly hear from him. Evo um, Rabbi Nusson Habavli is arguably one of the great famous figures from Bavel, Rav Nassan, um, who authored a book that I've been quoting often in this class. Uh, Pirkei, uh, no. Yes, 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 yes. Avos de Rav Nassan, uh, which Rab-Nosan. is the braces that extend the teachings grammar, of, it's, it's essentially like the grammar of Pirkei Avos. Right. Very important. He was also one of Reb Udenossi's teachers, Rav Nassan, and we hear about him. Rabbi Nosan, from from Bavel. Is also, is also a major figure from this period. He later goes to, goes up to Eretz Israel. He's cited among other other accomplishments. He, he had a hand in the editing of the Mishnah, and uh, he's considered he's considered Rebbe's teacher. Tomorrow. Hashem. We're going to meet some of the great figures of all time. We're going to be talking about Rabbi Yehuda bar Eli, Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai, uh, and that's probably all we're going to get to because there's a lot to say about them. So come, come on time as best you can.